Well, we have been working our way. Everybody's found their way to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we've been working our way through this book. And by way of review, Paul had come to this town around 51 AD and on his missionary journey, and he begins a church here in this town of Corinth. And he spends about 18 months there teaching the word of God and establishing the church. He decides to go on it further on his missionary journey, so he hands the church off to another pastor, and Paul leaves and continues. Well, the church is going on, and it's probably been about five years or so after Paul has left that the church realizes that things aren't the way that they used to be. So they decide to write a letter to Paul with a list of questions, and uh, so they send a delegation to find Paul. So Paul gets the update as to what's going on in the church, and he sits down and he writes. He writes, first of all, to correct some of the problems that he's heard about, but then also to answer some of the questions that they have asked. So as we've been traveling through, you'll recall it was in chapter 4, Paul dealt with leadership issues in the church. Then in chapter 5, he dealt with immorality amongst believers in the church. Chapter 6, he dealt with believers in the church who were suing one another. Chapter 7 had to deal with marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness. And then chapter 8, he wrote about what was appropriate for a believer. Now this week is chapter 9, and we're going to find today that Paul is going to deal with a situation that was very personal for him and uh, apparently somewhat hurtful. And we'll see that as we we travel through. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that Paul is writing this probably five years after he's left the church. So this is finally coming out about five years after the fact. It's been said that chapter 7, where it deals with marriage and divorce and remarriage, is the most controversial uh, chapter in this book. Chapter 8, where it deals with what's appropriate for believers, is the second most controversial chapter. But chapter 9 isn't so much controversial, but it tends to be most offensive, especially for people who would be professing believers. So let me give a little background as we get into this, uh, so we can understand a little bit about what Paul is sharing and why. Again, he's been gone from the church for five years, and um, being gone for for five years, um, again, it was five years earlier, Paul shows up at this church, and um, he begins to share, and as he begins to share, people begin to get saved, marriages begin to be restored, teenagers begin to come to faith in Christ, people are walking away from paganism, they begin to walk away from immorality. And Paul is there in this town of Corinth for a few months. And being there for a few months, all of a sudden, the money begins to dry up. So Paul goes out and he just gets a job. And this is written about in Acts chapter 18. I want to encourage you to read Acts chapter 18 sometime. It gets the whole story of what took place when Paul was there. And I put the verse there in your outline from Acts chapter 18. It says, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, and I've underlined Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, and I've underlined synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So as the story goes, Paul is now working from sunup to sundown, uh, trying to pay his way, and the church continues to grow. Every week he's going to the synagogue to evangelize those who haven't come to faith in Christ at this point. Every evening he's counseling, he's teaching, he's not getting a whole lot of time off. And then uh, we find in Acts chapter 18, that same chapter, verse that we become familiar with, it says, so Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So in this time of teaching the Word of God, there's, there's study time, there's prayer time. He's teaching the Word of God. Now that would be what you and I would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul's entire teaching about how Christians should live is going to come from the Old Testament, the Word of God that they had at that time. So 
Paul will speak to these ex-pagans as though they know the Bible, the Old Testament, and the reason they know it is that's what Paul taught them while he was there. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and in verse 1 of chapter 9 he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If, If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul ultimately would write most of the New Testament. uh, Jesus actually appears to Paul, and the very fact that this church exists is the evidence that Paul was called. He was an apostle and he was called. And yet there were some in the early church that questioned his calling as an apostle. That's a story for another day. We're going to keep moving. Verse 3, it says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So when Paul says this, one of the things that we need to just talk about very quickly, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but, but Paul tells us that the other apostles were, were married. And uh, so we believe that all the other apostles were essentially married. They had kids and they, they, their, their wives traveled with them when they ministered. If you come from a Catholic background, you've been taught that the women that were attached to the apostles were not their wives, but simply they were, they were uh, female assistants who would operate as like, like a uh, modern-day nun would, would operate, but they weren't married. We would not hold that view. We're not hostile to that, but we, we see it very, very different. In verse 5, he says at the very end, he says, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Now, Cephas is just simply the Aramaic way of saying the word Peter. So it's talking about Peter. So we would believe that Peter was was married. Well, in verse 6, he goes on, he says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to to refrain from working? So Paul is saying, so so Peter was married, and uh, the other apostles were married. uh, Jesus' own brothers were married. And it appears, as you read through the scriptures, it appears that, that all of them worked full-time at the church there in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem, because it came from a very, very strong Jewish background, they understood the concept of making sure that the church leaders were well taken care of. And Paul says, you know, they all have wives and they seem to be doing okay, and the church is taking care of them. But Paul says, but you know, I moved here and I taught you what the Word of God says about this and you got saved, but you know, you never got around to actually supporting the ministry. We're going to find in in, uh, 2 Corinthians, the next letter that Paul writes to this church, he's going to say, and I put it on your outline, he says, "I, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. And I was present with you, and was in, when I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. And when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So the idea is that Paul came to Corinth, but it was other churches that supported Paul. But this particular church never got around to supporting Paul and the ministry. Now, it's important for us once again to remember that Paul is writing this some five years after he's left the church. And so he's ministering in another place. So Paul says, so let's think about this. Verse 7, he says, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard and does not eat from the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? 
So you, you can imagine as he uses these illustrations, he says, what do you think the morale would be like in the military? And for those of you who've been in the military, you'll remember when you joined, and uh, when I joined, it was called the MEP station. If uh, you came uh, before that time, I'm not sure what it was called, but you joined and you go there. But can you imagine as you, you swear in, the first thing they say to you is, so um, do you have a uniform? He said, well, no, I, I thought you were going to provide that. And they said, no, no, you've you got you to scrape together some money and go get yourself a uniform. And uh, since you're going to be going into combat, do you have a rifle? Uh, no, I, I thought you were, you were going to take care. Oh, no, no, no. You've got to scrape together some money. You've got to go buy you a rifle. And since you're going into combat, uh, you're going to need some bullets. So if you're going to go into combat, you better scrape together some money and go find you some bullets. Uh, what do you think the morale would be in the military if the military operated that way? Or imagine if you applied for a job and uh, they say, we really like what you do and we want to hire you. And so, so here, here's the deal. Um, do, do you have a computer? Well, I was kind of thinking you'd provide that. No, no, no. You need to scrape, scrape together some money. Go get yourself a computer. You're going to need that. And when you come to work, do you have a desk? You say, well, no, I, I don't have a desk. Well, well, you're going to have to get a desk. You've got to go find yourself a desk. And not only this, but, but on this particular job, we want you to be available 24 hours a day. When there's a crisis, you need to be there. But um, the other thing you need to know about this job is we're not actually going to pay you. So how many of you would sign up for that job? Not too many, not too many. So imagine if you planted a vineyard, you, you planted it, you cultivated it, and the, finally it begins to grow, and as it begins to grow, you go outside and you see there's some grapes, and you've been planting and cultivating, and you begin to take some of the grapes, and somebody pulls up in their car and they go, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm getting some grapes. He said, well, why are you doing that? You, well, I, I planted it, you know, I cultivated it, and so it's, it's okay if I, if I eat some of the grapes. That makes sense so far? So then in verse 8, Paul just goes on and he says, Verse 8, he says, But I'm not speaking of these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Now remember, Paul, this is a predominantly Gentile church. It comes from a very, very strong pagan background. Paul's going to refer to the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament because in church, that's what Paul did. He taught them the Old Testament. He taught them the Bible. Verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope that the thresh, uh, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And then Paul says in verse 11, he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul says, you know, if you were out there in the field and the ox was pulling what he pulls, you know, the plow, and he's doing all the work, you'd feed the ox, wouldn't you? Of course, they'd all say, well, absolutely, we'd feed the ox. And Paul says, so in the same way, if we sowed spiritual things among you, um, you know, the fact that you're not going to hell and you're saved and you're, you're learning, uh, would, it, would it be too much to ask to ask you to also support the work of the ministry to support what God is doing? Well, verse 12, he goes on and he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We call it no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. When he says, if others share this right over you, some people would say, well, other pastors came through and they demanded that they be compensated. I I don't hold that, and and many Bible scholars don't. 
when Paul says, if others shared this right over you, the idea is that, for instance, you wanted to buy a house and a mortgage company comes alongside of you and they say, hey, you can't buy that house. We're going to step in. We're going to help you buy that house. And as we do that, you're going to have a roof over your head, but, but we'd like you to pay us on a monthly basis to make sure that, you know, that we, we go forward that way. That makes sense? So you get the card in the mail, it says, it says Visa, and say, we want to give you some spending power, and uh, we want to give you the ability to do that, but at the same time, we're kind of expecting that you're going to return that to us, and, and you're going you're to pay for that, and everybody gets that. So Paul says, so if others share that right, don't we? I mean, isn't, isn't the gospel more important than a temporary roof? Isn't the gospel more important than some temporary spending power? Isn't, isn't this the most important thing? That makes sense so far? But you know what I love about Paul? Paul says, but we did not use this right. So here's what we find about Paul. Paul says, you know, when I came there to minister, I never wanted to make ministry, I never wanted to make money the issue. So go ahead and write this down. Although Paul taught on giving, he chose to never make money the issue or a condition for doing ministry. Although Paul taught on giving, he chose to never make money the issue or condition for doing ministry. So for Paul, coming to church was never going to be a big fundraising event. He didn't want to make money the big issue as far as people coming to church. Hopefully, here at Calvary, we've modeled Paul's heart and how we do things. You know, we have chosen here at Calvary to just put boxes in the back of the room. We rarely mention it except for when we're teaching through and we come to a place where the Bible's talking about it. We don't stop in the middle of the service to t- stop and pass the plate and take an offering. Now, I don't think those things are wrong. It's just something that we particularly, we don't do. So other people do, but, but we don't. And uh, God has really blessed our church. Last year, in tithes and offerings, we received just over $2.7 million. And uh, when we said we were receiving a Christmas offering to go towards uh, missions uh, and outreach in the coming year, you guys responded, and we received just over $85,000 towards that. Now, because this church has given very generously last year, we were able to give out over $300,000 to missionaries around the world, to benevolence, to some of the local initiatives that we partner with. And so we've been able to do that. We've been able to pay all of our bills. We've been able to pay uh, the $40,000 a month that it takes to keep these buildings. When you consider uh, the mortgage, the rents, and all that goes into it, the three and sometimes $4,000 a month electric bill, we've been able to do all of that. We've been able to take care of all of our needs, and we've been able to save for the future. So God has really uh, blessed our church. And God has allowed our church to to continue to grow. For those of you who've been here, it was three years ago, we had just two services. And uh, those two services began to fill up, and we were able to get a little bit more parking on the seven acres. And so we, we uh, had two services. So two years ago, we added uh, an extra auditorium. So it was uh, two services, but two auditoriums, and then that filled up. Then this past year, in 2015, we added three services and two auditoriums. And uh, every time we do that, by the way, they reduce my teaching. And as they reduce my teaching, the church continues to grow. I'm pretty convinced if I just shut up and stay home, this thing will take off, you know. (laughs) But so far, uh, I'm still required to be here. But last week here at church, last week here at church, there were 1,126 people 
uh, there uh, amongst the three services. So, so we're really having to think about things as we move forward. We have been a very blessed congregation, and my friends in ministry are always very amazed when they find out that God blesses us that much and we don't even pass the plate. So again, we've been a very, very blessed ministry. So anything that I share today is because we're, we're here in the, in the chapter, not because your church is, is in need. We're, we've been very, very blessed. So we have. We've been blessed. Now, on the other hand, like Paul, because we don't make money the big issue, one of the things that, that has taken place, like Paul, because we don't make money the big issue, um, what happens is we've created an environment where a larger than normal percentage of our congregation lives with the financial commitment to the gospel as any unbeliever would. See, unbelievers would never jump on board on the things of God. They would never jump on board on the things of ministry because they're unbelievers. And we get that. What's sad is that for us in our congregation, we've created the environment where 50% of our congregation lives with the same financial commitment to the ministry and to the work of God as any unbeliever would live. And that's not a good thing. And uh, it was so bad in the Corinthian church that Paul continued in verse 13. And I'm going to read verse 13 there on your outline, verses 13 and 14. So Paul responds to that and he says, don't you know? And I want you to underline, don't you know? Now, when Paul says, don't you know, although Paul had taught on this when he was there, he's giving the benefit of the doubt that, that maybe they missed it. And so he wants to go over it again. So he says, don't you know that those who work in the temple, and I want you to underline the word temple, get their food from the temple, underline that, and those who serve at the altar share in what's offered at the altar. And then verse 14, I want you to underline in the same way. Does everybody see that? Underline that. In the same way, the Lord has suggested. What's the word? It's not suggested? Okay, so this is a command. Commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So, so here's what we know. Paul had taught this congregation to put God first in their finances. Paul uses the Old Testament as the foundation for how it's to be practiced in the New Testament. And, and one of the things that I love is that he uses the temple. The temple was a building. Paul anticipates that there would come a time when the church would have buildings. And so he uses the temple. And then Paul says, in the same way. And I love how he says, don't, don't you, know? you know? So in the same way, how they did that in the Old Testament is how it's supposed to be done in the New Testament time. And when Paul says, don't you know, uh, he's assuming that maybe they don't know. Now, because of that, I want to just share a, a quick passage that most of us are familiar with from the Old Testament. Again, this is by way of review for most people. But um, it, it comes from the book of Malachi. And it's a, a very dark time in Israel's history. And uh, God begins to speak about something going on. There in your outline, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and comment, so you might want to hold your finger there as we travel through. First of all, he says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 
I love that. He goes, you know, their people are going, how should we return? We, we haven't gone anywhere. I mean, you know, we're not doing anything. We still show up for worship. We're not doing anything weird. You know, we're not out sacrificing to false gods or anything like that. And then God puts his finger on what God sees as their problem. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? And then I want you to underline, he says, in tithes, and offerings. They're different. We'll talk about that in a moment. You are cursed with the curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. In the Old Testament, the tithe was always the first tenth, and that always belonged to the Lord. It wasn't called the tenth, it was called the tithe. The tenth could be any tenth. The tithe is always the first tenth, and that went to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, if you were a faithful believer, you gave the tithe, that's the first tenth to the Lord, and so that would be 10%. And then after that, there was another 10% that was required for the various feasts throughout the year. So it was really 20%. But then after that, you still had to pay your taxes. And so, uh, but God here is just speaking of the tithe. And one of the things that we find with the nation of Israel is that they started great, but you know, over time they gave less and less, and then they started giving what we would call leftover giving. Kind of waited to see if they had anything left at the end, then they'd give that to God. And one of the things that happened was that God began to pull back his hand of blessing on not just individuals, but on the entire nation. And so they asked the question, well, how can a man rob God? We rob God when we take the part that's, that belongs to God And instead of giving it to God, we consume it on ourselves. And God says, that's robbing me. There's a part that belongs to God. And when we take what belongs to God and we consume it on ourselves, that's robbing him. In the New Testament, one of the things that we find is that God doesn't just bless us for us. God blesses us because he wants us to participate in what it is that he's doing. And that, that's, that's one of the reasons he blesses us. And uh, with our economy in the shape that it is right now, we're still one of the most blessed nations that the world, probably the most blessed nation that the world has ever known. And what I, what I love about God is he says, here's the problem, but he doesn't blast them. He just says, here's the solution. And the solution begins in verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe. Now, you want to underline whole tithe, and we'll talk about that, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And then he says, and test me. Test me now in this. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I love, this is the only place where God ever says, test me, test me, find out. You gotta find out, test me. Yet in the Old Testament, I think in the uh, town of Corinth, and I think in modern day, We say, well, I I can't do that, to which God says, well, test me, test me, find out. Invite me back into the financial arena of your life. Put me first. And uh, so so you notice a couple of things in here. This is just for fun. Uh, You know, some people say, well, shouldn't shouldn't I, you know, wait till things get back in order financially? Well, God says, no, you need to test me. Test me in the place of your greatest need. So there's a couple of things that I want to point out. These are just for fun. Uh, you notice that God says, bring it. He doesn't say, give it. You want to write that down. He says, bring it, not give it. Do you remember when he said, you're robbing me? See, the only way you can rob someone is when you take what belongs to them. When you take what belongs to them and you use it for you, that's robbing. 
So God doesn't say give it. If he said give it, it would mean that we owned it. But when he says bring it, he says bring it because that's the part that he owns. He owns that part. And uh, you notice in the Old Testament, he would say bring it to the storehouse. Now the storehouse in the Old Testament was the temple. But here, Paul is writing to the New Testament church, and he's pointing to the Old Testament as the example. So in the New Testament, the storehouse becomes the local church, and you want to write that down. So wherever you go to church, and if you find yourself going to another church, you want to put God first there, wherever it is that you go to church. Now, it's also important that I say this. You notice that God says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. He does not say, bring the offering to the storehouse. Did you notice that? You're robbing me in tithes and offerings, but he doesn't say bring the offering to the storehouse. The tithe is the first 10%. That goes to the storehouse. The offering is above the tithe, and that goes to wherever you want it to go. So in our family, for Cheryl and I, the first 10% plus, we've always made a decision to always give more than the 10%, that comes to the storehouse or to the local church. Now, above that, there's some things that we're very, very passionate about, and we give to those things. That's the offering. Hugs and kisses go together, but they're not the same, and you can do one without the other. The tithe is the first tenth that goes to the storehouse. The offering is that which is above, and that goes to wherever you want it to go, the things that you're passionate about. Are we having fun yet? Okay, now, here's the most fun. Ready? Uh, Write this down. It's called the tithe, not the tip. Write that down. God knows our tendency to tip. And some of us can become great tippers. I think there's a reason why God says bring the, and he feels like he needs to say whole tithe uh, as opposed to, you know, if he doesn't say the whole tithe, we'll find a way to just simply tip. So he says bring the whole tithe. So here's what he's saying. In the time of our greatest financial difficulty, that's the time that we need to start. For me, I was 25 years old. I was in grad school. I was working full time, and uh, God's really moving in my life at this at this point. I sit down with one of my mentors in a restaurant, and I'm sharing God's doing this, and I'm learning this and this and this. I see, and the guy he's very polite, and he says to me, first words out of his mouth, "Are you tithing?" And it like hit me, tithing. I mean, it, and I thought, you know, tithing's for like, you know, other people. Like, you know, you, you get a job, you know, and you, you get out of school and you get established. You have a family, some kids, and you got your retirement account. You got some leftover, then you start putting God first. And he said, no, 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 that's not how it works. You start trusting God now and you allow God to work. And so he showed me a few verses, the same ones that I'm showing you today. And I made the decision at that point that I would always put God first in my finances. And so I did. I've always done that. I've been up, I've been down, I've been in, I've been out, but God has always been first in my finances. So years later, I meet Cheryl, and I'm very passionate about tithing. So we sit down, unbeknownst to each other, she had come to the place in her life where God had dealt with her, and, and, he, and she had said, I'm always going to put God first in my finances. So when we came together, we're like, we got, I have something I have to tell you. I have something I have to tell you. And so we said, well, I put God first in my finances. You need to know that before. And I put God first in my finances. And so when we came together, there was never this tension. I know some of you really struggle because you're married to somebody that, that would, does not want to put God first in their finances. And I understand that struggle. And that's very, very painful. But for Cheryl and I, it's always been something that we've been agreed on. And God's always blessed that. And so I, I, you know, we've experienced that. Here is, I think, for me, the best part about tithing 
And I want you to hear this, especially right now if your heart's going, oh, I don't want to hear that. And, uh, but here's what you need to know. You need to know this. You have never met somebody who has put God first financially in their life over the long haul who has ever said, I regret doing that. You have never met. And you want, you know something else? You never will. You never will. God makes sure that you never, it doesn't mean you're always going to, you know, you're going to go through some difficult times, but when you put God first, you'll never regret doing that. You'll never meet somebody who regrets that. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. So um, here's what I would say. If uh, you're here today and you're not putting God first in your finances, what I would tell you, God says, test me, test me. I got to know, you got to find out, put them to the test. Take a four month test. You won't die. Take a four-month test and prove him wrong, I dare you. Prove him wrong. Then you can stand up in front of the entire congregation and say, he's a liar. God's not going to let that happen. He's going to work in your life. He's going to change your heart. He's going to do something. You're going to see God show up. But you've got to test him. You've got to test him. Make a decision. I'm going to take four months. I'm going to put him first. Let's just see what happens. At the end of four months, if God doesn't show up, then we know. Then we know. You've got to find out. You've got to find out. All right, we're going to move on. You look... <laughs> so three ways that God uses tithing. I want you to write this down. Three ways that God uses tithing. First of all, one of the things that it does is it reveals what I really love. Reveals what I really love. You know, one of the things that we know about humans that, that we give over the top generously to the things that we love the most. Grandparents, you have grandkids, grandkids call you up and say, Grandma, Grandpa, I want ice cream. You're like, of course you do. Let's go get some. You give over the top generously. You know, when I was dating Cheryl, and guys, we all, we all did this. We, we were dating that person we ultimately married. We were in love, and she said, I want to do this. We were like, great, let's go do it. We didn't say, you know, it's not really in my budget. We didn't say that. We just said, whatever it is, who cares if it makes sense? We're going to go do it. I'll figure it out later. And you want to know Why? Because we were in love, and we always give over the top generously to what we love the most. And here in our family, I can tell you that after 19 years of marriage, it's still pretty much the same. And um, Cheryl went out shopping this week. She comes home with this thing, which I probably would have never bought. But she comes home, and she sets it down. She says, you know, I was in the store, and I saw this thing. I know we don't really talk about it, but this. And uh, she's trying to sell me on it. And I just start laughing. She goes, why are you laughing? I go, because I don't care. You want it? Get it. I'm, I, you know, I'm... I love you. I want you to have it. If you want it, I'm in. You know, who cares? So um, I, it's not really part of my notes, but that's a freebie. <laughs> but God knows that we always prioritize according to what we love the most. Jesus would say it like this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, it reveals where your heart is. If your, heart's not, if your treasure's not in God's kingdom, the truth is your heart's not there either. And if you want to get your heart in God's kingdom, you put your treasure there and your heart will follow. Your heart will follow. So it reveals what I really love. Number two, it reveals what I really believe. And it's going to be in two ways. God says there in Malachi, he says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So here's how it reveals what I really believe. First of all, if I believe that God will pour out a blessing in my life, I'll take the step putting him first. But if I don't believe that God will do that, then I simply will not 
put him first. Either way, it reveals what I really believe. Not only that, but then it reveals how important I I think the gospel and the ministry really is. It, It shows me what I really think about how important all of this is. It reveals what I really believe. You see, for Paul, his frustration here in the Corinthian church is that it was never really their highest priority. Everything else was their highest priority. And they all loved Jesus. They all loved everything, the teaching, up until it actually meant that they needed to fund it or they needed to make a commitment. And all of a sudden it revealed the truth about what they really believed. And then number three, it's God's method for funding his kingdom. Go ahead and write that down. It's just God's method for funding his kingdom. Notice he says there in Malachi, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. One of the things that we know about God is that he's the creator of the universe and he spoke it all into existence. And uh, Jesus would feed the 5,000. He'd take just a very little and he'd multiply it. He's the God of the universe. So I think we all agree that he doesn't really need our money, does he? But one of the things that we find about God is that he loves to participate with his people in accomplishing his purpose. For instance... Uh, he calls us all to do evangelism. Personally, I think God could do it better without us. I think that we get in the way, we mess it up, we say the wrong thing, our brains go blank, uh, we stutter, all of that. I think God could do it better without us. But he calls us to do that because he loves to partner with his people. He loves to partner with his people. So he has chosen God's people, putting him first financially as the way that he funds his kingdom. It's just his chosen way of doing that. So so here's what we say here at Calvary as we we wrap this up. Um, Like Paul, we have chosen to never make money the issue. So when you come to Calvary, there's always going to be a box in the back. I don't think it's wrong to pass the plate, but, um, but it's not something that we do. And God has taken care of this church wonderfully through the years. And whether it's because of how we do that or whatever, I don't know. I'm just telling you, we've been very, very blessed. We do teach on it when we come to it, and then we, we just simply, again, put boxes in the back. And uh, again, God is taking care of us. So here, here's what I would say. Number one, if right now you, you're part of that 50% of our congregation that does not fund the ministry you know, in, in any way, I would ask you to just take a step. Start somewhere. You don't want to live your Christian experience with the, or your Christian, your walk with Jesus with the same commitment as any unbeliever would have as it relates to the gospel. Start somewhere. What would happen if you just started somewhere and you began to see God just begin to move? What would that do in your heart? You'd say, well, Lord, you, you did this, and so I, I'm going I'm to take a step further. But just make the decision. I'm no longer going to be the person who lives with the same commitment to the gospel as any unbeliever would do. So start somewhere. Now, if, if you're part of the, the next group, there, there are a number of us, we, we tip God, you know, we faithfully tip, but we don't tithe. I want to encourage you today, would you just take a step closer to, maybe just to inch your way up and see, see God do something there? Maybe as you take that step, God does something to let you know that he's honoring that step that you're taking and uh, who knows what, what testimonies that uh, we might receive as you take just that step. 
Now, if you're part of the 20% and you've been putting God first in your finances, I want you to know that God is honored by what you're doing. You know, this church exists based upon how you've placed God first in your finances. And, and as I shared a few moments ago of what's happening in our church, it was a couple of years ago, it was just two services. Then it was two services and two auditoriums. Last year, it's three services and two auditoriums, and it continues to go. I want you to know that God is taking your investment in his kingdom, and he sees what you're doing, and he's putting that reward to your account. And, and I thank you, we thank you, and keep, keep going, keep going. Can I tell you a quick story? Uh-huh. I talked about a four-month tithe challenge. And it was a few years ago, we, we said, just take a four-month challenge. So there was a single mom in the congregation. We still have a few moments. Uh, a single mom in the congregation, she said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. There's no way I can do this. But she felt the Lord speaking to her. So she said, Lord, I'm going to do this. So she's a single mom, and uh, she begins to put God first. It was like two weeks later as she puts God first, and she doesn't know how she's going to make it. But all of a sudden, her collective family comes around and they say, you know, here she is, she's a single mom, she's living in her house. Why don't we take part of her inheritance that she was to receive and why don't we pay off that mortgage on her house so that that goes away? So the little bit that she was putting towards as she followed God in faithfulness, God responded to by opening up a great deal of freedom in her finances. We see testimonies like that all the time when people take that step. But God says, you have to test me. Test me. So will you test him? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, today, as, uh, as we've, been, we've been doing this, you, you've promised to step into our finances as we do this. And Lord, here's what I know. First of all, this is really bugsome people, and that's good because it's not me. It's your word and it's your spirit, and each and every one of us has to have that, that place where we come to and we say, I'm either going to be mad about this or I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And I'm asking you, God, that wherever we go to church, that you would help us to put you first in every area of our life. And as we do that, I pray that you would meet us. Your word tells us that in this world we have tribulation. There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. It's going to be times of abundance and times of lack. But through it all, you're going to see us through, and we're going to see you do some incredible things in our lives. Father, for those of us who have been tipping you, uh, but, but not really investing in your kingdom significantly, I pray that we would take that next step an inch closer as, as you're speaking to each and every one of us. Father, for those of us who have been putting you first in our finances, I pray, Lord, that you just encourage and, and let each and every one know that you're taking that and you're using that in your kingdom. And Lord, in all of us, I pray that you would accomplish your great purpose in our lives and in this church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.